Matthew chapter 3. We're just a few steps into our journey through this theological biography of Jesus Christ called the Gospel of Matthew. So far in chapters 1 and 2, we've read about the genealogy of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, and the search for Jesus after he was born by both the Gentile Magi and the evil King Herod. Now in chapter 3, Matthew is going to leapfrog over more than 25 years of Jesus' life and land at the time when Jesus, now an adult, gets himself baptized. The baptism of Jesus, which, if you know anything about what baptism means, is actually kind of shocking. Today we're going to read the whole chapter, all of Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to see how it applies to our lives today. But first, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking a a clear word, something that's true and solid, something we can stand on. So much of what we hear today is quicksand. It's shifting. It's It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. It's not trustworthy. But your word is a rock. Your word stands. It is... It is solid. So Lord, help us to understand what we're seeing here today in your word. Understand who Jesus is better and worship him more more rightly, more, more faithfully, more truly as we, as we go into our faith. Thank you for the, this uh, opportunity to look into your word and to have it get into us. Help us to get into it now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So obviously, Matthew leaves a lot of stuff out. Unlike Luke, who tells us a story about Jesus when he was 12, Matthew doesn't give us anything about Jesus' life growing up in Nazareth in the home of a carpenter named Joseph. Matthew is selective. Matthew has things he thinks we need to know, and those are the ones that he tells us. You know, the other gospel writers are the same. Mark starts his gospel right at this place. He doesn't give us anything about even Jesus' birth. And John, when he gets into the action, picks up a bit later in the story. We aren't told everything we might want to know, but we're told everything that we need to know. Jesus, at this point, has not yet gone public with his ministry. That will happen in the next chapter, chapter 4. He's still living in obscurity. He's still preparing and being prepared for his mission. And one of the things he has to do to be prepared, apparently, is to be baptized. And who better to do that than his relative, John, what? The Baptist, right? That's that's his name. That's what he does. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And so the action begins. After 400 years of prophetic silence, there is a genuine prophet of God on the scene once again. And not just any prophet of God, but the forerunner 
of the Messiah, the man who links the Old Testament to the New Testament, the man who serves as a bridge from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant and points everyone to the Messiah who was to come, John, we call the Baptist. Verse 3, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. That, by the way, is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Matthew recognizes that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of the promise of a voice, of one calling in the desert. Here he comes. Now, John was definitely a prophet. He looked like one, right? Verse 4, John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. What a character, huh? How strange. This guy looked like Elijah, didn't he? Remember Elijah from the book of, of, of Kings, the books of Kings? 2 Kings 1 verse 8 said that Elijah the Tishbite wore a garment of hair and with a leather belt around his waist, right? So John dressed like this on purpose to signal to everyone that he was a prophet. He was an Elijah. He didn't go into town for his meals. He didn't pull into the McDonald's, right? What did he eat? Locusts, which were a kind of large, wild grasshopper. And he ate the honey that he could grab out of the wild beehives, right? So he's living off the land. He was totally committed to his prophetic message. And what was his message? Look at verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. That's our first application point of only two this morning. Repent. What does that mean? It literally means a change of mind. Meta, change, noia. Metanoia, a change of mind. Noia is mind. A change of mind. It means a turnaround. It means to make a U-turn. Anybody make a U-turn in a car this week? I bet some of us did. You're going down the street, headed towards what you thought was your destination, and then something came to your mind and you said, this is the wrong way. I need to be going in exactly the opposite direction. I almost named this sermon, U-Turn. Y-O-U-Turn. Yeah, but I didn't. I didn't. To repent is to make a 180 degree turn with your life. That's what John the Baptist was calling people to do. Why? What did he say? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is near. That's really important. That's really big. I can't overestimate how huge that is. The kingdom of heaven another, is another name for the kingdom of God. And he says, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is near. The idea is that there's this kingdom, this, this kingdom where God rules. And that's one of the biggest ideas and most important themes in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to encounter it again and again and again. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, here's what it's like, here's what's important, here's what the values of the kingdom are, and it's here. Jesus loves to talk about the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes when I ask people, what was Jesus' favorite topic? to teach on 
People say, oh, the cross? No. Prayer? No. Those things are part of the kingdom. His favorite thing to teach on was the kingdom of heaven. And he and John says, it's here. It's near. It's at hand. It's on the way. It's right here. We're on the cusp of it. And so, people better repent. That was John's message. And there were a whole lot of people who, who were receiving that message. Look at verse 5. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Massive crowds. The time was ripe for this message to be received. People were repenting. They were coming to John and taking the first step of repentance. They were confessing their sins. That's, they were recognizing they were headed in the wrong direction. And they were saying, I'm headed in the wrong direction. They were agreeing with God about where they had gone wrong. And they were turning from those sins and getting baptized. Now that's why we call John, John the Baptist. He's different from John the Revelator or the, gospel, the, the, the Apostle John. This was John, the one known for baptizing. Because he preached repentance and he baptized those who were repentant. Now that was pretty much a new thing that John was doing. There were ceremonial washings in the Old Testament. And some religious communities like the Qumran community practiced their own ceremonial washings. And later on, the Jews would also practice baptism for new converts. If a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, they could get baptized to join. And it's possible that they were already doing some of that at this time period. But John was baptizing Jews. John was baptizing folks who were already, at least on some level, a part of the covenant community. And he was telling everybody... Everybody needed to repent. Didn't matter who they were. And those who did repent, he baptized. But those who didn't repent, he didn't baptize. Look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He was a lot of fun at parties, wasn't he? He knew that these guys were not coming out to be baptized. And if they were, it was on false pretenses. They had come out to judge him. Not to confess their sins and indicate their repentance that they had been going in the wrong direction. No, they just wanted to come out and say, I don't think this is right. Or, yes, add that to my list of accomplishments. Interestingly, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were normally enemies. Of one another. They were normally opponents in the religious struggles. Both were in the Sanhedrin, and there was always kind of a, a tiff between the two. But here they were getting together to see what was going on out in the wilderness at the John the Baptist show. And what they got was an earful. You brood of vipers. You crafty, dangerous sons of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Who told you you could find safety here? Then he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You say you're repentant. Well, show it. 
act like it. Verse 9, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. By the way, there's a play on words there in the Greek. The word for stones and the word for children sound very similar. He says, you think you're children? God could raise up children out of stones. You see what he's saying there? They were trusting in the wrong thing. They were trusting in their ethnic identity. They were trusting in their family identity. They were taking it for granted that because they shared DNA with Abraham, they could live like the devil. And John says, no way. Uh Uh-uh, that's not how it works. And you will soon find out for yourselves. Verse 10. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Judgment is coming. But it's not John that will bring that judgment. Verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Wow. Those are powerful words, aren't they? That last picture he paints is so sobering. The farmer grabs his winnowing fork and he sticks it into the wheat and he tosses the wheat up into the air. Well, what happens? There's this great sifting, right? There's a great sorting when the wheat goes up into the air. The heavy, good, full, healthy wheat, what does it do? Falls back down. Gets safely shoveled into the barn. And the nearly weightless Worthless chaff floats up in the air and over there into that other pile where it's not good for anything except to go into the fire. And John says that's two different kinds of people. The repentant wheat and the unrepentant chaff. And just to be clear, the chaff is burned in an unquenchable, unending fire. That means it never goes out. So John says, in light of that, repent. And that's what God is saying to us today. Make the U-turn. If you have never confessed your sins and turned to God, then know that God is calling you to do that today. Repentance is not optional. And it's not just something for back then. Repentance is for everyone. The Bible says that God calls everyone everywhere to repent. And don't think that you're exempt because you come from a good family or because you're in church. It doesn't matter if your grandma is a Christian or if your dad is. It matters if you are. Repent. Now, John was primarily talking about the once-for-all repentance that comes at the beginning of the Christian life, turning from sin to the Lord, and symbolized by water baptism. Verse 11, I baptize you for repentance. Because you have repented, you've been baptized. 
But in this life, we're never quite done with repentance either. Until we're perfected in glory, we still have repentance work to do. Martin Luther called the Christian life a race of repentance. Repenting is not just something we do at the beginning of the Christian life. It's something that we have to do every single day. Make the U-turn. Make the course correction. Head in a different vector. Head in a different direction. Repent. Of what sins do you need to repent these days? Where is the Lord working on you? What sins is he putting his finger on and asking you to confess and turn away from? If your answer is, I'm not repenting of anything these days, then I'm worried for you. What needs to change in your life? I'm not talking about New Year's resolutions here. Though if one of your resolutions is to grow in repentance, I think that's a great idea. What needs to change in your life. I love the word picture that Matthew quotes from Isaiah in verse 3. Because this is what repentance is. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for Him. Isaiah was saying that the king was coming to town. Right? And if the king is coming to town, then the city planners get together and they improve all the roads, don't they? We can't have the king come bumping into town. Boom, boom, boom. What's the king going to think if that's what all the roads are like coming into town? No, he's got to come in smoothly, in style. Where are the low spots in your road? Where are those speed bumps that need to get flattened out, smoothed out? What needs to change so that this road is a road fit for the king? In Isaiah 40, it goes on to say, Every valley shall be raised. And every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. In other words, we'll do whatever it takes to get ready for this king. What needs changed in your life? Recently, I had to repent of a foolish decision that I had made. I made a hasty and unwise choice that affected other people. It seemed right at the time, but it wasn't. And I had a buddy who took the time to confront me on my foolish decision and point out where I had gone wrong. He was a John the Baptist for me. I'm sure it wasn't easy for him, but I'm really thankful that he confronted me. Now here's the thing. I needed to change. I needed to turn around. I needed to confess my sin to God. Verse 6, and I need her to do verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with my repentance. It wasn't good enough to just agree that I had done wrong. I had to go and make it right. And there were several steps I had to take to make it right. I had to do an about face. I had needed to do a U-turn. I needed to change. How about you? What in your life needs to change? It might seem like a small thing, but it's not. You know, if you're off just a few degrees, you can end up in a totally different city, right? Might be a small thing, but it's not. It might seem like too big a thing, like, oh, I can't turn that ship around. But it's not too big for him to turn around. Repent. 
for the kingdom of heaven is near. Did you catch that John was predicting the Messiah here? John isn't just a baptizer, he's a forerunner. John loves to talk about the coming one. Look at verse 11 again. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Do you know that uh, Jewish slaves weren't, didn't have to untie their master's shoes and didn't have to carry them? Like if you were a Jew and you were a slave, that was considered beneath what a Jewish slave had to do. You, you could be called upon to do all kinds of stuff for your master, but you didn't have to carry their shoes. What's John saying? John is saying, this one who is to come, I'm not worthy to be his servant. I, I'm, I'm not worthy to be someone lower than his servant. My baptism is nothing compared with his. My baptism is good, it's true, it's It's water. It's external. It's a symbol of repentance. But his baptism is spirit. It's internal. And it's fire. It's effective. It's transformational. I think that word fire here means both refining fire and the fire of judgment. For those who are repentant and know the Lord, the fire is a purifying and powerful fire that was symbolized by the tongues of fire over the apostles' heads at Pentecost. But in this context, there is also that unquenchable fire of judgment. And we don't, you don't want that kind of baptism. Do you see how radically fixated John is on this coming one? And then guess what? He comes. Verse 13. Then Jesus came. From Galilee to the Jordan... To be baptized by John. Isn't that strange? I mean, from everything we just read about baptism and repentance, why would Jesus want to get baptized? I mean, that's what John wants to know, right? Verse 14. But John tried to deter him, saying, I I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? I'm just not sure we've got this right, Lord. I need your spirit and fire baptism. You don't need my little water baptism. You don't have anything to repent of. John knew that this was the Messiah. That he was the one to come. John knew this was the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Here he is. Why would he get baptized? Verse 15. Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Now Jesus does not say, you know, you're right, let's not do that. He also doesn't say, oh no, I'm sinful, I do need to repent. That's not why Jesus gets baptized. Jesus doesn't get baptized like all these Jews had, for repentance. He gets baptized, he says, For righteousness. Not repentance, but righteousness. You see that in verse 15? It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. There's that word of Matthew's, right? His favorite word, fulfill. 
to, to fill up, to, to bring to fullness, to actualize. Jesus says that his baptism will fulfill all righteousness. Now, I think he's saying more than just that it's the right thing to do. Now, let's do it. It would be good. He's saying that his, baptiz- his baptism will bring righteousness to fullness. Now, I think to understand that, we have to understand another thing about baptism than what we've said so far this morning. And that is that baptism is an identification with something or someone. When you get baptized, you get immersed into something that stands for something. You're being included, absorbed, connected, identified in your baptism. When Christians get baptized, we're identifying with Jesus. We're identifying ourselves as sinners who need washing And we also know, this side of the cross, that we're actually identifying with Jesus' death and resurrection, right? Going buried with Jesus in in his death, raised with Jesus to new life. That's what we're saying. With what or whom do you think Jesus was identifying when he got baptized? With us, right? He's identifying with us and with our sin. He's giving the official stamp of approval to John's ministry. It's good. Count me in. And he's proclaiming his solidarity with us sinful humans whom he has come to save. And talk about that word fulfill. Listen to these words from Isaiah 53 verses 11 and 12. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Make righteous. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he'll divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He said, I'm with them. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I think that's what it means for Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was baptized at the beginning of his ministry to inaugurate his mission to be numbered with us, to bear our sins as our substitute, to go to the cross and to give us his righteousness. And watch what happened next. Verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. Wow. (laughs) Wow. I do not know what all that means. I can't even hardly picture it. Can you? But I do see the Trinity here. Father, Son, Spirit, perfectly united, yet also distinct. I see here the Spirit of God descending like a dove. What does that mean? And, and, like he hovered over the waters of, at creation and now he's resting on Jesus. Just like Isaiah 11 promised. We read that a few weeks ago. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of power. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And I hear this voice. The voice of God the Father saying, that's my boy. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. One of the key questions 
in the Gospel of Matthew, it's asked again and again, and it's answered again and again in this book is, who is this person? Who is Jesus? That's what we've been answering so far with the genealogy. Who is this guy? Well, let's look at his pedigree. Where did he come from? The birth. Why are all these people after him? He's the king, right? Who is this person? Jesus. Well, here's God's own answer to that question. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. It was right for him to get baptized. It fulfills all righteousness. Everything he does makes me happy. I sure love him. This is my son. I was working on this sermon last night and I went home and I said it to each of my boys. I said, oh, Isaac, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then I said it to Peter. And then I said it to Drew. And then I said, this is my daughter to Robin. Didn't want her to feel left out. But this is God saying it to his own son. And he's picking up language from the Old Testament, from Psalm 2, right? And from Isaiah 42. There's son language in the Old Testament, but this ratchets it up to the highest level. Jesus is the son of God. Here's point number two. Last one today, and it'll take us right into communion. Rejoice. Rejoice that this is who Jesus is. And rejoice that you know who Jesus is. And rejoice that you know this Jesus. And rejoice that this Jesus got baptized for you. He didn't need to repent. He didn't get baptized for himself. He got baptized for you. You needed him to identify with you and with your sins. And he did. Rejoice.